Welcome to Lunch with Tech Leaders, where we have engaging conversations about software development and cloud engineering with industry leaders and subject matter experts. These episodes are created by the Great Lakes Tech Leaders, an online community of technology practitioners. Please come join the conversation by visiting gltl.rbn.ai. Again, that's gltl.rbn.ai. Now strap in, because we're deploying to production in three, two, one. Hello, my fellow tech leaders, and welcome to the latest episode of Launch with Tech Leaders. My name is Adam Oberhausen. I'm the Director of Cloud Architecture with RightBrain Networks, and I'm your host for today. Joining me today, as always, is software and data consultant Tom Kowalski. Say hi, Tom. Howdy. Hello. And of course, uh, let's not forget about my main man, business technology consultant Joe Coleman. What's up, Joe? Yo, Adam, you're too kind. You're too kind. Thanks for that introduction there. Just letting y'all know I'm here to kind of referee things. So if anyone has any questions throughout uh, the recording here, just go ahead and throw it in the discussion, the chat, and I'll make sure that we get around to it and make it front and center. So thanks so much, Adam. Yeah. And if we get too far in the weeds, Joe, just throw something out there to like bring us back to reality. If, if you feel like it's getting boring or too technical or well, something. Well, to bring it back to reality in this tie-dye purple and teal hoodie. I don't, I don't know if you're talking to the right guy, but all right, I'll do it. I'll stay on top of it. Yeah. Um, okay. So today we're going to talk about feature flags. You know, what are they? How are they used? Um, we're going to talk about some best practices, avoiding pitfalls. And then we'll hopefully wrap things up by talking about some really popular platforms out there. And there's even some open source platforms that I researched for the show that look really interesting. So we've got a lot to cover today. So grab your lunch and buckle up. Tommy, take it away. Yeah, very excited. Feature flags near and dear to my heart. Big proponent. So today, yeah. to help us talk about feature flags, we're bringing back Bilal Hussein. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Bilal. Hello, hello. Uh, I'm Bilal. Uh, I'm currently a senior QA engineer at Datasite. Um, worked with feature flags a fair bit, I'd say, across uh, my last few roles. Um, and I've got kind of a cool uh, sort of out-of-the-box use case for them that I'll talk about, I'm sure, at some point. But, yeah, that's me. Sneak peek. And new to the show, we have Ethan Evans. Go ahead. Hello, hello. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm Ethan. Uh, so right now I'm a senior software engineer at a company called Artifact Uprising. So I've been doing full-stack development for about six years and uh, most of that time using feature flags. So excited to talk about them. Great. All right. Thanks for being on the show, guys. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy days to come uh, chit-chat with us. So, um, Tom, can, may I start with my history lesson? Yes, you know, let's how, do how it. Do. Okay, so history of feature flags. Um, they've been in use since the 90s. Um, as they were introduced as a way to control the release of new features in complex, large-scale systems. So at the time, uh, the first when they first started using these, these were... Um, feature flags were implemented at compile time. Um, so they were still pretty cumbersome. So you, you know, you'd basically have to recompile and re-release the software in order to toggle a flag, which is very different than how they're used today. Um, so I think, you know, the idea was there and um, just thinking about the way I used to develop things, like sometimes you kind of put in, you, you use your own feature flag just with like a database setting or something, right? There's kind of ways to like toggle things um, in real time. Anyways, the early 2000s came along, 
and then uh, that introduced the runtime feature flags, which are more common today. So you can basically toggle things at runtime, uh, make it easier to experiment with these new features. And then over the past decade, feature flags are pretty much all over the place, you know, really popular in agile software development and continuous delivery practices. And there's tons of tools and um, all kinds of things out there that, that support feature flags that we're going to talk about today. So that's my little history lesson for the group. That's interesting. I, you know, what's the definition? If you have to recompile to flip the flag, you know, that's, that's I don't know if that. That's, yeah. I, I don't know the if that. Database to, changes is one yeah. thing, but you happen to have to recompile to, to flip the flag. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, let's just start with a, a basic definition of feature flags. Um, can you give it to us, uh, Ethan? Sure. Yeah. So feature flags uh, is a way to control what the customer sees whenever they're using your product. So usually there's some service or some product that enables you to set a flag. So you'll have like show feature number one and you'll have it on or off for a customer. Um, and depending on what treatment of that feature flag they get, they either see it or they don't or some behavior changes. And that allows you to do some really cool stuff uh, about you know testing production, releasing features gradually, uh, and doing that kind of thing. So, have you, in your experience, has it only been like front end, uh, you know, just changing what the user sees, or have you done more uh, also back end feature flags and kind of like different logic or different flows of, of things? Yeah, I'd be interested to hear if anyone's used it on the back end because personally. For me, it's most of the time is is all front end based uh, in order to do more of the A/B testing, that kind of thing has been my focus. Okay. How about you, Bilal? Uh, add I guess, to that or any? Yeah, I guess without repeating anything that Ethan said, he had a great uh, great summary. I think um, on the QA side of things, I think uh, it's important to recognize that feature flags can be used to mitigate a lot of risk around releases. So. Uh, if you have, you know, some uh, two different flows, like for example, an old flow and a new flow, and you're swapping between either, uh, you could very easily using feature flags swap between those flows. And if you determine that your new flow is broken for some reason, or um, you're seeing some unexpected behavior, um, it's pretty trivial to to just swap that back to off and, you know, address your issue. Or you could even target a subset of users to try to duplicate that, uh, you know, the behavior that you were seeing. So, uh, really great. Uh, tool for mitigating risk around uh, new releases or, or you know, feature changes. Yeah, you guys are touching on some the benefits of using feature flags, which is something I want to talk about. We've, Ethan, you mentioned just gradual release of new features. That's a key one there. And then you've got the mitigation of risk. Um, you can easily roll back something or you know, uh, reduce the blast radius of, of doing something in production, right? So um, anyone else have any other, um, you know, why, why use feature flags? What's the benefits? So kind of the the one other thing I wanted to mention is um, I mentioned kind of an sort of outside of the box approach to uh, using feature flags is we recently integrated uh, feature flag checks into our end-to-end -end tests. So um, oftentimes you might merge some uh, automation code that accounts for you know a new flow and obviously that could break your old test. So what we did is we implemented a feature flag check that allows us to essentially decouple uh, changing tests from the from having to push or merge any code. So ultimately what that allows us to do is if we know that there's a feature flag that's controlling whether this feature is on or off, we have end-to-end -end tests around it. Um, we can use those 
same feature flags or a different feature flag for that matter to control which end-to-end -end tests running are running or which behavior they expect. So uh, not just for front-end or back-end code. Fancy. Uh, one of the things I researched for the show, uh, which I want to get the thoughts of the, of the panel on, is just uh, feature flags allow increased agility and speed of delivery. Do we agree, disagree with that? Ethan? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, for definitely sure. Agree. I mean, that's I'm doing that like today and this week. Um, we're working on a, a PDP redesign. So that's the product detail page. Uh, so it's on an e-commerce site. People can configure and learn about products. Uh, hopefully click that add to cart button. Um, so we're working on making changes to that page. And that is something that is pretty critical to the site. So you don't want to, to mess it up or uh, release anything that's half-baked. Uh, but one thing with feature flags is that you can kind of deploy stuff that's half-baked, uh, get those tickets cleared off the, the sprint board early, uh, but have them behind a feature flag. So you'll often hear us talk about things in demo to the company about this is in production, but it's behind a feature flag. So that allows us to get these, the get a very consistent flow of tickets out the door, even though we're not releasing any new features to customers quite yet because it's behind the feature flag. That's a great point. I think um, historically, uh, if you talk about testing and production, um, you might trigger some QA folks. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you can use feature flags to release this thing to production and ensure that no users are touching it, and then you can start your testing, um, ensure that, you know, sometimes your your pre-production environments may not be kind of fully in parity with your production environment. And so um, having the ability to uh, really limit that blast radius, is, as Ethan mentioned, is, is super uh, crucial to mitigating risk around those releases. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of just like releasing fast and frequently, Tom. So it's just like the feature flag allows you just to start because you know you don't want to you don't want to develop a feature for weeks and months, right? And then go to you know push it through your automation pipeline, and there's all kinds of problems or right integration challenges, right? So if you're if you're deploying, um, you know, like your first sprint should be like you know get the feature flag out there and put some dummy code behind it and get it out there just to kind of get that process of um, we're free or we're releasing it all the time is it available to the end user maybe or maybe not right depending on what the what the flag set to yeah i feel like you you have to right if if you want to develop fast right in this day and age feature flags are required uh in some capacity so yeah okay. i'm intrigued as to are we still going with benefits more benefits um sure yeah I was going to, yeah, we'll transition. We'll do finish up benefits and we'll maybe talk about some best practices. Yeah. Um, so the other benefit I had researched was, when we've already talked about it, is in, improved collaboration between developers, product management, and QA. Um, well, that's, that's my question, right? Yeah. Who, who is controlling these feature flags? That's, that's you know, what I've always had issues with and challenges. I'd love to hear the perspective of Ethan and Bilal, if you want to. Like who is managing them? So, yeah, from my experience, uh, I may be having a little bit of internet issues here, so let me know if I'm going in and out. But Crystal from clear. my experience, a lot, a lot of the the product managers like controlling the flag so that they can enable and disable features based on when they're running the tests, right? So it kind of enables the product managers to control when a, a test is running. And when I say test, I'm talking A B test, which is something we haven't really touched on quite yet. Talking about it, but this allows uh, the the product manager to give 
one segment of customers a, a treatment on the site and the other segment gets to stay as the control and then you can learn whether a feature is actually productive or not so the product manager likes that control in order to be able to run that test from my experience how do you like how far can you go with that right because then you have the issues of it's not consistent you know is, is it kind of like one-time flows that you have a user go through or uh, do you also use it in, you know, the app where they're constantly working on it, and now all of a sudden there's a change to the UI, right? Like, how do you introduce that and like the the flipping of it and manage that? When do you use them? Was that a follow up for Ethan there? Yeah, um, Ethan Arbalal. Yeah, I'm, I'm missing your question just from my internet issues. Just maybe someone can can take that for me. Uh, yes. Sorry, could you repeat the question for me? I I was half listening. I'll yeah, no worries. <laughs> so if you are making changes to the flow for the user, sure. um, you know, and, and experimenting on that, doing it different ways, how do you control what they see, right? Is it, you know, kind of off-putting if, if it's a different flow and then the next time they use it, now it's different again, right? Like, where do you draw the line? Uh, and changing that for like the, the different customers or how do you uh display that to them or you know, make it transparent that you're part of a test or do you like what situations i would do you say do for for my current organization organization we don't actually do very much a b testing i would say for us it's more of an all or nothing approach but i think historically speaking um i've seen um kind of little banners that will display hey you're testing you know a, a, a new flow you can and they always give you the option to swap back to the old flow so you can kind of opt out um i think it's it's kind of a mixed bag ultimately uh is really if you're doing a b testing sometimes you don't want the user to know and you want to collect data product may want to collect some data to see you know how that feature is being utilized differently between you know the existing flow and this "Quote unquote new flow." See, and then so the question back to you: Who controls the feature flags? Let's say for us, it's pretty much kind of the um, anybody can do anything kind of approach. Is ultimately, I would say, product managers can manage that feature flag, but oftentimes for us, it's really uh, either dev or QA, um, and it's I would say it's probably a fifty-fifty share between that. Um, it's really, I think, for my organization, oftentimes QA is is, uh, is doing the actual releasing of this new feature, and then Dev might be monitoring and, and kind of assisting with that. But um, so uh, it could be Dev flipping the flag, it could be QA. Um, generally, product isn't as involved unless there's some sort of um, some sort of testing involved, which at this point we're not doing a lot of, I would say. Heard of some a use case where uh, to follow up on your question line of questions there, Tom, where it's like you might have a different flow based on where a customer is located geographically, right? You're like so, you know, maybe if they're in Europe, maybe the checkout flow is different versus what it is in the U.S. So I think there's some like there's I I feel like that kind of ties into kind of some of the things you were getting at, but I yeah, was, well, it's kind of I'm another question, these, right? Yeah, where do you, where do you draw the line of you know that that feature flag and be able to target versus like an actual feature of the software right and and that that logic and functionality um is, you know is there a life cycle for that right and then you know i guess that gets kind of into the feature flag 
lifecycle management, right? Like how how do you go from this is a feature flag to now it's you know part of the software? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's a great transition to like let's let's try to talk about some of the best practices with feature flags. Yeah. Kick it off here. So we've got uh, number one, start with a clear plan, right? So before you implement feature flags, you want to start with a clear plan, um, outlines the specific use case, uh, the type of flag to be used, and uh, steps required to manage the flag. Um, any any comments there, Bilal or Tom? Start with I'd the like plan. to know, Bilal, yeah. yeah, how do you manage? Sure. Are they in the backlog, right? Are they part of tasks of the sprint? Yeah. I mean, I feel like they should be, but oftentimes I would say uh, we're so. Uh, my company is kind of in a transitionary process. Um, well, we're sort of on the tail end of that, but we used to have our own uh, home-baked solution for feature flags that um, ultimately relied on, um, you know, passing something in like a query string or a header, that kind of thing, um, which I think um, that's more of sort of an explicit, like, you know, you have to have something either in your header or your URL to to enable that. Uh, whereas now we're kind of utilizing the, I think the ubiquitous, you know, LaunchDarkly solution where, you know, you have this feature flag in a UI that you're either controlling, you know, in an all or nothing kind of manner where you're targeting a certain subset of users. Um, but ultimately, um, it, there is uh, some cleanup that needs to be done because at the end of the day, you know, if that feature ends up being, um, you know, released and you're, you have your 100% of your users utilizing it, um, at some point, you know, that feature flag doesn't really matter anymore. And if you're not uh, not diligent about cleaning up, you know, those feature flags that are left behind, it can pretty quickly get out of control. So let's say something that we've adopted more recently is um, having uh, basically some sort of uh, review process that says, hey, this is still in use. Uh, LaunchDarkly does make that really easy in some ways because they do give you some metrics on um, when that feature flag was last checked um so you can really um you know ultimately rip it out of rip it out of where you think it lives in code and then kind of compare you know if is it still actually being hit can we can we really deprecate this um so for us it's kind of a, a slower transition of um enabling the feature flag doing your testing releasing releasing the feature um and then after the fact uh we'll archive and then eventually delete the feature flag based yeah, on the, the data that we've gathered. You touched on something that, you know, we yeah, have best practice number one, start with a clear plan. And I think a, a part of a plan for doing feature flags is you want to avoid increasing your technical debt. And you touched on a lot of those things there, uh, Bilal. Um, and in order to do, in, to, in order to avoid that technical debt, you need to, you know, make sure that you're using the feature flags consistently uh, make sure there is a process for reviewing them, like you talked about, Bilal. I think that's all really good stuff. And like, yeah, because I think you could eat very easily go down a path of uh, feature flags, and that leads into best practice number two, which is use feature flags judici judi judiciously. Right? You don't want to over flag your application with a bunch of craziness. So you, I think you need to be strategic about when to use flags and when to not. So. Um, can yeah, you talk about when when to when to use them versus not, Bilal. Do you guys kind of have that debate of uh, does this really need to be behind a flag, or do you do you tend to just like, well, let's put it behind a flag and then just follow our process to to deprecate it once it's out there? Yeah, I think it really comes down to a discussion with the team. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there is a discussion of, hey, does this is a feature flag appropriate for this? 
Sometimes the answer is no. Um, in the case of, you know, I think we asked about APIs earlier. I think oftentimes rather than using feature flags, we use versioning um, for APIs. So whether it's a header or just a new endpoint entirely, um, oftentimes for uh, APIs, we typically don't use them. I'd say historically, it's been primarily for um, front-end changes or more recently, end-end uh, -end tests. Um, but yeah, I think it, it. I think I've strayed off topic a little bit. Uh, it's all good. Yeah. Um, so and we've touched on. So best practice number three: clean up old flags. What does that mean? And I think that was a challenge we had. Um, in the past time when we tried to introduce feature flags where it's like, oh, you know, the pushback from developers would be like, well, then you're kind of managing two versions of the code, right? And it makes it makes your app instantly more complicated because you're you're you have two versions of or you know, you're you're adding complexity to your code base by using feature flags. Do you have any um what's your feedback to that, Tom? And like what do you how do we get through that? Yeah, yeah, you are. And so that's why I kind of brought up and asking Bilal, right? Do you put it on, on your sprint, right? As a task. And I feel like it should be tracked, right? Removing the feature flag should be, you know, a task that's in the backlog of, of everything that you're doing. So it is tracked and, you know, being monitored and. Yeah. Yeah. I totally know, agree with that. Cause it, there definitely should be a paper trail. Cause at the end of the day, I think feature flags are intended to be um, oftentimes short lived of like, Hey, we're doing this testing. We're going to release this feature. Um, I think I would say initially when we started adopting LaunchDarkly, there definitely wasn't that culture of um, ensuring that things were continuing to, you know, like if you're if you're cleaning up the code and that feature flag is no longer relevant, you should be going into LaunchDarkly and deleting or archiving that flag. So um, it's definitely uh, we're, we're I think at the point where that is something we think about if we know we're um, you know if we have a ticket that says hey create you know, this this branching logic based on a feature flag, there's an accompanying ticket that says clean it up at a later time. Um, and that, you know, usually is sort of separate from that main story. Um, but um, I think it really depends on where you're at and, and sort of your free feature flag journey. Uh, like I said earlier in the process, we definitely weren't doing that. Uh, and that ended up, you know, we kind of got to a point where we had a bunch of feature flags that had nobody really had any, any idea if they were still in use. Uh, and so we kind of had to have a coordinated cleanup effort and really consolidated a lot of things into sort of a main project. Um, so we're kind of at that point in our journey now where we do create tickets as sort of a, a reminder to come back to clean that thing up, uh, but we didn't initially. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, right? Like the, it's a cultural change, right? And how you're developing and yeah, it depends on where you are. I feel like you can read up on the, the best practices of feature flags and everything, but I feel like anybody that's, you know, implementing them in their organization is going to go through the same growing pains, right? It's kind of like, uh, you know, you, you got to learn the hard way and then it's like, okay, we need to, yeah. we need to manage these better. We got to got to do your laundry. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, you know, you guys pretty much just covered best practice number four, which is set expiration dates, right? So it's, you know, you have to clean up the old flags, but part of that process is setting an expiration date. So when you define a flag, you know, there should be a date in mind to say, this is the date when this flag gets retired. Um, best practice number five, we've got test and monitor performance. So once you, once you get your flag out there and you're actually pushing traffic to the, to the new 
feature or environment um is that something you guys closely look at i think ethan's back um just kind of want and Bilal, if you want to take this go right ahead um but yeah like do you guys like is there more you know how do you monitor how the app does when you toggle the feature what are you looking for and how do you how do you do it i would say yeah. oh go ahead ethan oh thanks hopefully i'm back now yeah <laughs> we'll see how it goes yeah, as far as performance testing and things like that, I think that really heavily relies on the observability piece of whatever you're working on. So if you're working on something on the front end and you're hiding and showing things, um, it would be really great to be able to get that piece of information of about which treatment the user gets and put that into your observability tool, however you do that. I know like Split has an integration for New Relic. Uh, that could be helpful maybe to add that as like a custom parameter on some transactions or do something like that that's similar in whatever tools you use so that you can see in a simple chart or a line graph or something that, oh, when they have this treatment, this is their time to interactive on that page. Or this is the, you know, whatever other metric that is important to you, how that depends on the split treatment that they receive. So having that hooked up, it's one of those things where if you hook it up once, then it'll pay dividends for however long you're doing A-B testing or, or split treatments. Um, and so it's a good thing to try to make sure that you utilize early so that you can uh, get the benefits of that as you, as you use them. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I think the other thing too, right? The the added complexity, you, you know, now you're with your observability tools, you're decoupling those deployments and releases uh, of also having like a, a tracker, right? Like I know I've used New Relic in the past and saying, you know, this is a deployment and you kind of see like, these are the things that change with this version, but you know, that kind of goes out the window if, you know, everything's behind feature flags in those changes. So it, yeah, you should definitely be, tying together your uh, your observability tools with um, with your feature flags and treatments point. Yeah, I think there's also um, some, uh, you know, at the end of the day, product does usually have a stake in, in the success of this thing, this feature, whatever it is. Um, and so ultimately, the hope is that you have some sort of um, metrics on the, how the front end is being used so you can compare sort of to your baseline and, and your you know your your new uh, your new flow. Um, so hopefully you're doing some some comparison of the data before and after that that flag has been toggled. So you do have some insight into how people are using this thing differently now. Yeah, that's a good point because with uh, like an out of box solution, you can often do more integrations, not just New Relic, but also send it to Segment or Amplitude or whatever other event tracking uh, tool you're using in order to see like how the behavior of the customer actually changes based on whether the feature flag is on or off. And that is the the most important bit to know whether what you're changing is providing value to your stakeholders. Yeah, it's interesting when you hear you guys talk about it, because it's like all these things tie together. Um, and then, so like the next best practice, which comes up almost every week, is uh, communicate changes to the team, right? So it seems like feature flag is a real easy way to make a change or do something in an environment, and all of a sudden, if you didn't, if it's not, if it's not announced or communicated that this change is out there or live, it could cause some friction in an organization. Have you guys? Can you guys talk about you know the communication aspect of of using feature flags and what's some best like what are the ways to make sure that you're keeping 
your developers, product managers, QA stakeholders, all in, all informed when using feature flags? Yeah, we have kind of a two-prong approach. Um, I'd say the first approach is we do have um, kind of, a, there's a channel dedicated to announcing changes and there's an internal tool we use to kind of ensure that all this, uh, basically any, any you know, management or any any stakeholders that need to be aware of these changes are uh it, it's sent into slack and then there's also some emails that are fired off um and then the second um second prong is uh slack or sorry uh launch darkly at least i'm not sure about split but launch darkly does offer a slack integration so you can essentially have your feature flag changes logged to a slack channel so if anybody is wondering if you know what changes um have been made to those feature flags, there's sort of a, a, a change log that's uh, always in Slack and, and ultimately persists forever. How about your team, Ethan? Are you guys doing anything it's a very similar approach or any 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 thoughts on communication piece with feature flags? I would, I would say that's actually kind of the hardest piece of the puzzle here. Um, so I'm interested to see if Split does have the integration because that might help us with some of that. Um, largely, it depends on the person who's doing the change, whether it needs to be communicated out. Um, and I think that often is the product manager who uh, on, our, on our team does a really good job at making sure that all the stakeholders understand what changes are happening. Um, and it also is part of the weekly demo of showing things to the, to the company to make sure that everyone understands what's going on with split or with feature flags, because oftentimes it is, it is more complicated than just like it's out there or it's not out there. Um, especially mm -hmm. if you get to where you're doing some advanced usage. And I think that this is another situation where it's very easy to have multiple feature flags going on at the same time with like hierarchies. So like if this one's on, then check this other flag. If that's on, then the user gets this. And all that should really be avoided as much as possible and try to keep it as simple as possible and say, half the people out there are going to get the new thing, right? And then people can understand that as opposed to doing something that's very complicated um, if if your use case allows for that that simplicity, then you definitely want to stick to it. Yeah, I'm just thinking about uh, your support teams, you know, the customer support teams, and if they're not aware of something that's out there, been toggled, or if there's some complex hierarchy, right? They might they might log into a, they might screen share with a customer and be looking at a UI they've never even seen because they're not aware of some feature flag that's been toggled, right? So it could get uh, it all comes back to that communication and making sure people understand like why the apps behaving and, and doing what it's doing. <clears throat> yeah, there's definitely a big culture aspect to that. Really, like, at the end of the day, you do have a lot of stakeholders that are generally invested in, you know, like, for, like you, the example you shared, if the UI is completely different and support isn't aware of that, I feel like um, could be an indicator that, you know, somewhere along the line, you've kind of screwed up a little bit and, and really everybody should be um, apprised to those changes, really, if if you know, some users are going to be seeing that and your support documentation support documentation doesn't reflect that, then it could be an indication that support hasn't had time to actually update those docs to really match the, the new reality of, of your feature. So uh, there's definitely a cultural aspect to ensuring you kind of get the, the most out of your feature flags. Yes. So you guys um, have thrown I, out split. I think yeah, well, real, quick, real quick, Tom. I think uh, yeah. Ethan had something he wanted to chime in on a best practice, and then we yeah. can move on to let's move on. And then we can move on to the popular platforms. Yeah. Oh yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, so one thing I wanted to to 
check in with just so that everybody is paying attention to it because it's easy to forget is that the pricing on these out-of-the-box solutions can often lead uh, to some issues if you don't if you aren't careful with them because often they are per user pricing depending on your plan or whatever uh, contract you've set up with uh, these companies um, but if it's per user you have to be careful with having different environments um, and a lot of automation automated testing going on um, and depending on how you identify that user to your uh, whatever tool you're using you could if you're following qa best practices and correct me if i'm wrong Paul, but the uh you often want to be creating new accounts for a user depending on whatever product or, or software you're developing. And in which case you could accidentally create a new user for every test and then get charged for that each individual test as a user uh, in whatever tool you're using. So that is something to pay attention to and just test as soon as you're setting this up because that is something that you might get a big bill for if you're not very careful. Yeah. Great call. Yeah. I've dealt with that with uh with authentication right some of the providers like to charge per uh per unique um so yeah that, that does bum me out when you have to change your your development flow and how tests are done because of those pricing uh models but yeah it's a good call yeah oftentimes with this situation you can it's kind of gross but in your in your code be like if qa user then identify as this ID or some some special logic there uh, or hard code. I don't, I don't know. There's there's different solutions there, but hopefully you don't have to do any major changes just because of the pricing structure of whatever tool you're using. Yep. Great call out, Ethan. Um, Tom, I think you were leaning into some of the popular platforms out there. You want to go into that? Yeah, yeah. Cause you guys mentioned Split and LaunchDarkly. I'm aware of those. I've used both of those. Is there anything else that you've used or any other popular platforms or open source? Uh, shared ones? I know those are managed ones. Optimizely is okay. the one that's out there. There's another one called ConfigCat. And then there's another one called Flagsmith. These are the ones that I research for the show. But yeah, for I, I feel like LaunchDarkly and Split.io are kind of the big players, but um, is there any other ones out there? And those are the managed ones. I do want to touch quickly on the open source ones, but is there any other ones out there that Bilal or uh, Ethan, you guys have used out there in the wild or seen? I'd be curious to hear if anybody's worked with uh, the AWS option, CloudWatch, evidently. Mm. Um, I haven't tried it out or, or really heard anything about it since it was released, so I don't know if that kind of like sunk or, or what happened with it. Uh, but I I do know of that one. Otherwise, yeah, it's mostly been split and lost sharply for me. I remember there being a gotcha. I don't know if it was with the pricing or something else that kind of hindered uh, me from from leveraging, yeah, AWS's offer. But yeah, yeah. So on the open source side of the house, um, you've got the product called Unleash. Um, there's 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 no shortage of open source ones. These are just ones some I randomly. Did looked up before the show. You got Unleash, you got Toggles, T-O-G-G-L-Z, you got Flipper, and Bullet Train. Um, and it looks like with most of these open source, you know, you you'd have to like you have to set up the server in your cloud environment. So you're managing, you know, you, you're you're able to run the software on uh, in your own cloud. Um, a lot of them have like Kubernetes support. So if you're if you're into the cubes um, and want to, you know 
and use open source there's 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 looks like there's some really nice options out there for that too and it looks like you know with open source there's usually like a, a services team or a sales team that can help you support your implementation so um there's like you know you can kind of hybrid approach it it looks like with a lot of these open source options as well uh, yeah would you yeah. recommend rolling your own this day and age I would not, yeah. but you know, I've, you know, I've, I know there's people out there that are passionate about, um, you know, hosting their own solutions and getting their costs as low as possible, like in your own data center. Like, I mean, sure. If that's what you want to do, but to me, I manage solutions all the way, manage service all the way. Um, yeah. Because it just, you know, we, we want to focus on developing our product and not have yeah. to worry about managing something, some cluster or some other thing right we've already got enough to worry about and manage so i agree Any... with that i think uh at the end of the day that becomes one more thing that you have to maintain and and keep up or even on the uh, infrastructure side ultimately that your your cloud or cicd or whoever has to really enter is you know up and stable and it, it just ends up being you know with with especially open source options available um it just doesn't make much sense i think to bake your own anymore I agree. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of everyone's time, but uh, I do want to open it up if there's any questions or final thoughts uh, before we close it out today. No? Okay. Yeah, it's been a great show. Um, want to thank Bilal and, and Ethan for uh, hopping in here today. Ethan, uh, sorry about the internet. Thanks for sticking it out and, and uh, working through the issues. Much appreciated. <laughs> no, thanks. No problem. Thanks for having me. And as always, we uh, Tom and I like to hang out at the show and, and chit-chat, so everyone's welcome to stay and hang out. And uh, we'd love to have everyone back next week where we're going to be talking about Kubernetes. And we're going to have some um, some experts joining the show that really know Kubernetes inside and out. And uh, I'm eager to see uh, Tom debate uh, with these folks. On yeah, the, uh, I'm ready. <laughs> on, the, uh, on whether or not you should even be using Kubernetes in most cases. So uh, thanks again. Uh, we'll we'll uh, see you next week and uh, have a great one. What do I always say, Tom? Lunch is over. Get, Get back, back to, to work. work. There we go.